Um, for our session this afternoon, I'm again going to take us back to Ephesians for a little while. If you've studied Ephesians, you know that there are two clear sections in Ephesians, divisions. Um, chapter 1 to 3 lays the foundation, theological foundation for the new community of God. How God has brought people from different backgrounds and how God has put them together in one family. Paul spends a lot of time showing this theological truth uh, about spiritual condition of believers before conversion and how God has intervened to bring them to life with the purpose of making them into one new family of God. Then in the second section of Ephesians, that is from chapter 4 onwards till chapter 6, Paul will spend a lot of time making practical applications and exhortations to as to how believers must behave, how they should behave in the new family of God, in this community of God that comprises of both Jews and Gentiles. So what we are going to do is now spend a little bit of time in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. And I'll quickly read it for you before we dive into it. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6, which is the first section of application following right after the theological exhortation of foundation in chapters 1 to 3. In the immediate verses, just before chapter 4, chapter four in chapter 3 verses 14 to 21, what Paul has done, he spent some time praying for the church at Ephesus. And he prays for them that they would be strengthened in their inner being in verse 16 of chapter 3. And he prays that Christ would dwell within in their hearts in verse 17. And he also prays in the same verse that they might be rooted and grounded in love. Then in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3, Paul prays that they might comprehend and know the love of God which surpasses all knowledge. You would agree with this, right? That the human ability to comprehend, to be rooted and grounded in love and to comprehend the greatness of God's love in Christ seems to be an impossible task. How can mere mortals ever even understand God's love in Christ Jesus? Right? How is it even possible? That is why in chapter 3 verse 20 he says, that's the verse taken out of context right behind us. Well, now to him, now to him who is able to far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. For what? What do we ask and think for? Or so that we might understand love. According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory 
in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And this prayer where Paul prays and says that God is able, he is powerful, he can enable us to be rooted and grounded in love, he can help us to comprehend the love of Christ. This prayer then leads us into the passage for this afternoon, which is chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Do you see that? It is in this context that we have just talked about that Paul urges believers he urges believers to pursue unity, unity among one another. And if you paid attention, the main question that we are dealing with this afternoon is, why should the bride pursue unity? Why must the bride pursue unity? So if you keep the immediate previous context in mind, and just follow along with me in the following verses. And these verses, we can answer this question as following. Why should the church, why must the church or the bride pursue unity? It must pursue unity because it is for the unity that the bride has been called. Because it is for the unity that the bride has been called. We see that in verse 1 onwards. So if you have your Bible, just look at me there and look at verse 1 of chapter 4. We see right off the bat, after having prayed for Ephesians to have a deeper meaning of God, deeper understanding of God's love, Paul urges believers um, at Ephesus, he says that as a prisoner for the Lord, as a prisoner for the Lord, he urges them to walk according to a manner worthy of the calling. By the way, just while I was reading this, uh, what struck me right away, that even though Paul is a prisoner, I mean, literal prisoner, he's, he's literally in chains, he's not concerned about his own welfare. Uh, he doesn't talk about, so when he mentions his chains or him being in prison, he doesn't do that in order to manipulate, emotionally manipulate people. I mean, like most of us would have done that, right? We would say to people, hey, listen, listen, look at me. I'm in chains. And you can't even live your life worthy of your calling? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Instead, he says, uh, the gospel is so much. It's worth so much. And so that I can give everything. I can give up everything for that, including my freedom to live for Christ. This is a man. Here's a man who is so given to the gospel. He is a man so consumed by the gospel that his comfort, security, well-being is not the thing that he is first preoccupied with. Instead, in his mind, what goes in his mind? He urges Christians at Ephesus to think and meditate about unity. Unity, unity in his mind is more important than his current physical situation. It is almost as if he is saying that uh, I don't mind being in this prison, in a sense. It, it, would it would be worth it. I don't care, actually, if you guys understand what unity is. And if you guys pursue unity. So then, as Paul urges believers here to be united, the first thing he does is he reminds them of their calling. That's in verse 1, latter part. 
He reminds them of the divine work that has already happened within them, in them. Have you noticed, while talking about unity, he does not, he does not appeal to any political, pragmatic, historical, sociological, anthropological reason as to why they must pursue unity. He doesn't. But he says, remember, you have been called. You have been called of God. He called you for a purpose. Uh, so walk or live your life according to your calling. And notice he says that you haven't been called by some earthly ruler. You have not called yourself. Uh, you haven't called yourself out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is not your work. It is not your doing. It is God who called you. Do you not remember in chapter 2 verses 1 to 10, what did Paul say to them? Chapter 2 verses 1 to 10, Paul, Paul tells them back then. He tells them, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like rest of mankind. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten what we were? Have you forgotten what our condition was? Do you not remember? Do you not remember? But God. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He's reminding them, right? He's reminding them. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say further on, he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that so that we should walk in them beforehand god prepared so that we should walk in them do you see this do you see this um, unfortunately the word calling we're talking about calling being called is often confined to the, the terminology used in the context of being called to ministry for clergy, pastors, and gospel workers. But when we see the text, calling here has to do with the effectual calling that brings us to life from death. I think we should be utterly careful how we use biblical words. Anyway, uh, but why has God called us from death to life? Why has he done that? Why? We've just read this. So that, so that we can do good works. So that we can do good works. Which works? Works that the Lord has prepared for us. And when did he prepare them? Beforehand. 
And what are the good works that the Lord has prepared for us that we should walk in them or live in them? That should be a lifestyle. Well, that's exactly what Paul expounds in chapters 4 to 6. That's exactly what he does in Ephesians. When talking about good works, 4 to 6, good works, that's all, 4 to 6. And the first thing while talking about good works, the first thing that Paul has in mind is Christian unity. Christian unity. Unity among believers in the context of the church. But in order for unity, in order to see unity among believers, for which the bride has been called, we need to see certain disposition. And that's what he talks about in verses 2 onwards. There has, to be some, there has to be something going on within the believer's life. And that's what Paul tries to explain us in verses 2 onwards. That's why he starts with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing at one another. So you would agree with me that the bride has been called by God to pursue unity? But that will not happen. It will not happen until the bride learns to cultivate these specific virtues. Please notice with me that Paul has spent awful lot of time explaining them about who they were, what their condition was, how God has rescued them, and how God has changed them, and how God has given them a new identity in Christ. And because God has made the first move, therefore now, now it is imperative, it is required of them, it is, it is asked of them to behave in a certain way. This kind of instruction is not moralism, by the way. This is not legalism. But this is the behavior that is expected of people who have been truly transformed, truly changed, truly born again, and who are truly part of the bride, the church. That is why in verse 2, Paul exhorts all believers, all believers, to live in all humility. See in verse 2, with all humility humility. I just love it how, how the authors are so careful in penning every single words and detail. He doesn't say some humility. He doesn't say sometimes humility, although I would have loved that. But what does he say? All humility. What is humility? Humility is not thinking too much of oneself. Not trying to make too much of oneself, one's achievements, one's work, one's successes, one's accomplishments. One who cannot stop talking about himself. Humility does not seek self-praise, self-exaltation, and constant affirmation from people around him, around them. Humility considers others better than oneself. Humility is willing to hear other person's perspective on issues that we might have different opinions about. I mean, very simply, 
very simply humility is the opposite it is the opposite of arrogance false self confidence prideful overconfidence and haughtiness then paul doesn't stop stop there he continues and he talks about humility and gentleness or as meekness meekness as many translations some translations put it humility and gentleness or meekness are basically first cousins a person who exhibits humility will also exhibit gentleness gentleness or meekness gentleness means that there's a there's an element of mildness not harshness gentle and soft not abrasive being polite being kind gentleness meekness is able to easily sympathize with people in their struggles and is patient with people this has nothing to do with indecisiveness lack of clarity inability to make decisions and lead this is not what we are talking about moses and jesus were were known as meek meek people but they both model true meekness in their lives in the lives and ministry how how and why because they did not lead and live in their own strength or in their own pride but trusting in the power and grace of god so paul continues with various virtues here he goes on to talk about patience and bearing it to one another Have you noticed these attributes are very practical real virtues that a Christian must possess? If we if 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 he ought to live out his Christian life in the community. In the do you see that? In the community. See here's the thing. If you were an individual just by yourself living up on one of the peaks of Himalaya, meditating on the word of God in one of those caves by yourself, in some desolate prayer's place then you didn't need these virtues you didn't have to you didn't need these virtues but we are part of god's family new family new community of god we live with other believers that are from different backgrounds we have been put together by the will of god to display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly place his manifold wisdom that in and through our lives when we live in love and peace in harmony with one another here's the thing living a christian life with one another requires awful lot of patience you know i rarely need patience with myself I really need to bear with myself. I love myself. I am naturally very patient with myself. And I am very forgiving to myself. I cannot have enough of me. But it hardly takes little time any time before I say I cannot deal with that guy anymore. I cannot have that person anymore. That person, those people, that group, this institution, this church, I cannot put up with them. That's precisely why Paul encourages 
people in the community as a Christian to possess and exhibit these qualities. So Paul could have, you know what, Paul could have talked about humility and he could have just moved on to the next topic. He didn't have to spend so much time about these things. But you know what, he's leaving nothing for speculation. Nothing is up for grabs. He, left, he keeps on telling, he keeps on going. He's being very specific. He's trying to cover as much as grounds as possible. He urges believers to be patient and to, to bear with one another, to cut slack, to show grace, to give more opportunities, to give second chance, third chance, fourth chance, fifth chance, and so on. Bearing with one another will, in, will include forgiving one another, forgetting one another's sins, not keeping an account of what has been done or what was done or how it was done. Bearing with one another is not simply just putting up with one another. I don't like that person. I have no love for that person. I have no affection for that person. But somehow, somehow I tolerate that person out of duty. The best I think that I can do or I tend to do, is I cut him out of my life. I ignore him. I just let him be there. And I try not to interact with him as little as possible. That is good for me. That is good for him. You know, Paul is saying actually the opposite of that. He's saying, bearing with one another in love. In love. Remember, he's just prayed for them that they would know the love of Christ. The love of Christ. And once a person understands the love of Christ, then what kind of love that person is expected to exhibit, show in his life? I think it's Christ-like love, right? I think it's Christ-like love that Paul has in his mind when he says, with all humility, all gentleness and patience bearing with one another in love. So basically what Paul is saying, Paul is saying, let love be the underlying virtue for all our godliness. It is not out of duty. It is not out of just duty, just sense of obligation. But it is out of true, genuine love for God and a savior and his people. Love that seeks people out. Love that restores people. Love that forgives, that forgets, that cares, that gives and gives and gives and gives. Well, why should Christians want to exhibit and practice these qualities and virtues in their lives because they know that these qualities will ensure and help preserve unity in the body of Christ and this leads us to our next point in verse 3 why should the bride pursue unity why must the bride pursue unity because unity in the church is the work of the spirit and we want to preserve maintain the work of the spirit and this is what essentially he's saying. 
after having mentioned all these qualities that the believers at Ephesus must possess, Paul says that they must be eager to maintain the bond, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, by the way, here's another example of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. This unity is the work of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be manufactured by mere mortals just by exhibiting such qualities. It cannot. You can't turn it upside down. This, uni this unity is unique because it is created by God the Holy Spirit. This is God-orchestrated unity. So Paul wants the folks, the people at Ephesus to be very clear that it is not your doing. You are not doing it. You cannot take any credit for this thing, for this unity among brothers in the church, within the church. Then what is the responsibility? What is the role of Christians? What is the respons their responsibility at Ephesus? Well, they must be keen. They must be eager to maintain it, to preserve it. To look after it, to keep it. What has been entrusted to them? What has been granted to them? They have received this from God the Spirit. It is their responsibility now to carefully handle that awesome stewardship. They need to do everything within their means. It is not a burden. It is a joy. So what should they do? In order to maintain unity, in order to preserve unity, they should not wait for one another to make the first move. They all will make the first move. They will try to outdo one another in godliness, not because they want to, to, to put down one another, but so that unity, which is the gift of God, will be maintained. They do not want to be known as people who are people who fracture the unity, who disrupt the unity wrought by the Holy Spirit. Now think about this. Think about this. Consider this. If unity is the work of the Holy Spirit, if unity is the work of the Holy Spirit, why would anyone want to go against and work against the work of the Holy Spirit in and within the church? Can you imagine that? And can you imagine the consequences that one would have to face when one intentionally disrupts the unity in the church? Anyway, you know that all these believers here, they knew that the Holy Spirit indwells all believers at Ephesus. They've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They've been sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. They all share a common bond of peace with one another because they all have the same Spirit, being baptized, indwelt, and sealed by the same Spirit. This unity will inevit inevitably further strengthen the bond of peace that is among them because of the peace that they experience within themselves and the peace that they experience with one another. Why? Why? Again, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So that is why in verse 3, Paul reminds them that it is God the Holy Spirit. It is the source of unity. It is His work. It is His ministry. It is His doing. It already exists among believers who share the bond of peace. 
Because it already exists, therefore you must do your part and you must not disrupt, not try to rupture or break it or fracture it. How? If you lack in humility and gentleness with patience and if you are unwilling to bear with one another in love and if you, are, if you lack in eagerness to maintain spirit wrought created unity. See, if you and I were writing this letter, we would have probably stopped at verse 3. But Paul doesn't stop here. He goes on to verses 4 to 6. He goes on to tell us, what are the grounds for unity? What are the bases? Why, on what basis can Christians, believers, have unity with one another? And this leads us to a third and final point. Third and final point. Unity in the church, unity in the church among the bride is built upon non-negotiable theological truths. Verses 4 to 6. Unity in the church among the bride is built upon non-negotiable theological truths. See, Unity is the need of the hour. Unity is the need of the hour. You say this, and there'll be hundreds of people who'll applause. And say, yes, yes, you're right. Everybody will agree with us. Within the church, outside the church. The world around us is constantly trying to build unity. Build unity around various causes and reasons, whether it is for political purposes, military purposes, economic purposes, or financial purposes. You, you guys remember last year what happened? Our government spent thousands and thousands of crores of rupees. Doing what? Doing what? Building the largest statue in the world, the Statue of Unity. This was one visible effort to create a nationalistic pride people to unite them closer to one another as one people one nation one people Christians have also tried to rally various groups and denominations and segments and bring them together to put them on a platform organization structure and have said this is for the purpose of unity a call for ecumenical unity is always resounding from various segments and sections of the church. Always. Sadly. Sadly. Most platforms calling for unity are trying to create unity out of their own strength, wisdom, knowledge, and strategy. You don't have to work very hard to discern very soon that their unity is often a result of some charismatic, attractive personality, and it is by their personality or gifts or skills that they're holding a certain kind of people together. And you'll notice that such groups usually, generally, have very little to say about what they believe. They're always actually they always 
aim for the lowest common denominator when it comes to theological truths in order to achieve the ever evasive unity. So all you have to do is have a look, have a look at the statement of faith. A document that clarifies what they believe and very soon you will find that there is very little that they believe actually. Or they have very little to say or they are willing to put on the papers about what they believe. Why do they not want to put in papers? Because it's all loosey-goosey and wishy-washy. And often this is done with a desire to see a greater movement, more cohesion, greater reach, more involvement of people of various stripes and groups. This is also true of many local churches, unfortunately. Sadly. Sadly, they are often trying to bring people together without really thinking why and what is it that really and truly unites us. So they are vague. They are very vague about the confession and the faith. Why? In order to attract and allow as many people possible. There is always, there is constantly, there is constant desire to lower theological standards. Remove all barriers as much as possible and as fast and as quickly as possible. Remove baptism, remove membership, remove covenants, remove statement of faith. As long as we believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, Let's all get together. Well, even that is not even essential. As long as you believe, just believe. Actually, even that is not important. Whether you believe or you don't believe. I'm being a bit fictitious. But you get the point, right? The desire is good. The desire is good. But this is nothing but trying to create and orchestrate unity but by our own efforts. And unfortunately, the fact is, this will always fall short of God's intended plan for unity. It will always be temporary and false and just a facade and a sham and a fake thing. But when we look at verses 4 to 6, we realize that Paul is not just calling the believers at Ephesus for unity, but he does so on the basis of robust, tight, clear, solid, theological, non-negotiable truths. And this is the third and final point. We need to recognize this truth, that unity in the church is built upon non-negotiable truths. We cannot compromise with them. Without truth, there is no unity. Without truth, there is no unity. It's fake, it's a facade, it's, it's a big, big sham. So Paul starts reminding the church of Ephesus about the truth that they need to keep in mind as they eagerly attempt to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He mentions seven ones. He mentions seven ones. 
One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And basically, he argues that these seven ones are the reasons why we are united. And everyone in the church of Ephesus must believe these seven truths in order to be united to one another. None of these truths are optional truths. Should we believe them or should we not believe them? Which one should we pick? At least three, if not all. Okay, let's, we can be generous, we can be kind, we need to be inclusive. Let's have two. No, they cannot pick one and leave another one. This is part of the creed of the early church. This is their statement of faith. This is the confession that every must, everyone must confirm, must affirm to, if they are to call themselves as Christians, and if they have a desire to see unity in the church among believers. I hope you understand and, and, and see this. Unity is not based on just feelings and desires of wanting to have peace with everyone and a desire to just get along with everyone. But unity is based strictly and primarily on doctrinal truth. Any unity that is not based on doctrinal truth particularly in the context of the church, is unity that is dangerous and built upon carnal desires. Brothers, true love prospers among brethren, and I'm not talking about de denomination, among brothers, when they have clarity, when they have clarity regarding truth. Often, Often, we overemphasize unity at the expense of truth. That unity is unbiblical and will lead to disaster. I remember growing up uh, many, a few decades ago, I heard somebody say to me, one of my teachers in one of the institutes that I was studying, doctrines divide, love unites. As a young man who was desirous of seeing church united, I'm like, yeah, yes, yes. I was enthralled by that statement. I said, yes, doctrines divide, love unites. Let's dump all the talk about doctrine and just get along with one another. The problem is, without the true doctrine, there is no true love. You have removed the very foundation of love and unity and then you are trying to build walls and put roof to this house of love and unity. It will come crumbling down at the first rain. That's why Paul in verses 4 to 6, he talks about non-negotiable truth. He says, there is one body. There is one body. I mean, if this was not obvious to the believers at Ephesus, he just makes it very plain, not complicated. While there are many individuals, many bodies, many local churches, 
They're all part of one body, the one church. There are not many churches with capital C. There's only one church with capital C, and that is His body. And we all are part of His body because Jesus has only one body, not bodies. This unity is not fake, brothers. This is real spiritual reality, truth. This is how it exists. This is what it is. There is only one body. Do not try to divide this body. Do not chop it up into pieces. Do not incur God's wrath by trying to drive a wedge between different groups in this body. If this is the reality, then let's start with forgetting about regionalism. Forget about casteism. Forget about upper class, elite, low or middle class, cream of the society or the crumbs of the society. There is no South India. There is no North India. There is no Central or Western or Eastern India. There is no Hindi speaking or Telugu speaking Malayalam or Punjabi body. There is one body. We are one in Christ. Just as there was no Jew, no Greek, no Gentile, they were one. There's one body, there's one spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit given to everyone regardless of the background. This Holy Spirit indwells the body, the one body. He indwells everyone. There is no special class. There is no special category. There is no half indwelling of the Holy Spirit or quarter indwelling. There is no partial, partial indwelling. He indwells the body completely fully. His ministry of baptizing the believers, indwelling the believers, the stealing of the believers has created Unity that is unbreakable among believers, that is unprecedented, that has never been seen in the history until the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. This one Spirit gives us new birth, spiritual new birth to every believer, and He gives them one hope. We all have only one hope. There's only one hope. We share in that hope. We share in that hope because of the effectual calling that we have experienced in our lives, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the hope? It is the hope of salvation. It is the hope of being saved finally from the presence of sin and being in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with Him forever and ever and ever where there will be no pain no more sorrow no more suffering a hope that we will be united to our beloved to our savior and a hope that we will reign with him forever and ever there are not multiple hopes you haven't been called to multiple hopes, but just one hope to which you and I have been called. 
We all were called out of our spiritual death into spiritual life. You know we were heading to eternal damnation. If it wasn't for God who intervened because of the Spirit, He gave us new life. We have one hope. This is what unites us. This is the basis of our Christian unity. We are not just going to live in peace over there for a decade or two or few years, for eternity, forever and ever. In perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect love, perfect joy. This is one hope. Do you have this hope? Do you know this hope? If we don't know this hope, how do we think and hope to lead our own churches into unity? And then unity among churches in this country. Not only this, but in verse 5, Paul goes on to tell us that we have only one Lord. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. He is unique. He's unique. There are not many lords. There is one Lord. There is no one like Him. He is the perfect God-man. He is the only incarnation of God who perfectly represents God. He came to this earth about 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life and died a death on the cross for His people in their place on the behalf to pay the penalty of their sins, to satisfy God's wrath against them and their sin. He died a shameful, cursed, painful death on the cross in order to save his people. All those who will repent of their sins and trust in him will be saved. And he rose again from the dead on the third day. His resurrection proves that he indeed is Lord just one Lord. He ascended into heaven and now he is seated on the right hand of the Father from where he rules over this earth. He now rules over us. He is our king. We do not have kings. We have just one king, just one Lord. And as Christians, we all submit to him. We all submit to him as one people, people united to one another in submission to this awesome, magnificent, powerful, glorious, mighty Lord. This is our Lord, just one Lord. Not only just one Lord, but one faith. One faith. All Christians of all time, in all places, believe everything that we've been talking about. This truth regarding who God is, who the Spirit is, who the Son is, and what has the Son done for us. This one faith in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, which is common to us all, which is given to us as a gift by God Himself, which unites us to one another because it is just one faith. There are not faiths. This faith that saves us, that delivers us from the evil one. This faith that makes us God's children by adoption because we are predestined by God. This is one faith. 
and this faith, we make it public to people in one baptism. In order to confess our faith publicly and be marked off as people of God, we all have been baptized. This is one baptism because it signifies union with Christ who is one Lord and entry into his church, into his body is shown, depicted and picturized by this one baptism. There is only one baptism. Only one baptism that signifies union and unity being brought into the kingdom of God and the family of God. Now, it's true that perhaps we were all baptized in different locations, different times, different modes, different manners, but the fact of the matter is that we've been baptized into the one body of Christ. We have become one, and we are united to other believers. And that's why this baptism is one, because it makes many one. This baptism is one because of one faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done. And finally, Paul says that not only we have only one God, one God, verse 6, who is the Father of all, who is over all, who is through all and in all, he is the Creator. He is the one who sustains us. He's the one who provides for us. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and Omega. He orchestrates and plans and he does everything for his own sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient will. He is like no one else. There's no one else like him. There is no parallel power. There's nothing that comes even close to him. There's nothing that precedes him or pre-exists him or predates him or outlives him. There's only one God. He is all in all and he is one. He is one. And if you have one God, if you have one Father, then why would you not be one? God the Father is make, making everything one under his sovereign rule. See, you and I can rebel against him at our own peril or we can submit to him and work with him alongside him to be one in the family of God. Family of God that he wants to create as one. Our God is one. One God. Three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one true triune God who is at work in these verses very clearly. So I hope that you can say that Paul has very clearly laid out why believers at Ephesus should be united to one another. He has given them very clear theological reasons to be united to one another. Have you noticed that there are no personal preferences? There are no cultural practices? There are no time-bound relevant ideas? These are truths necessary for the church, non-negotiable, not time-bound, not culture-specific, therefore, no compromise. Notice Paul does not lay more than what is necessary. This is what is necessary, that's it. There is more room for discussion for other things, for agreements and disagreement about a lot of things, but these things, no discussion. It is settled, done, once for all. Therefore, finally, my brothers, 
The church or the bride must pursue unity. Why? Because it is for unity the church has been called. But, but so what? So what? Oh, no, no. Unity is our responsibility because it is the Spirit who has done this work of unity. But what kind of unity? The unity that we want to see within the church is unity that is built upon non-negotiable theological truths. So as we close, finally, let me ask you a few questions, brothers, before you depart. You are the shepherds of your congregation. Are you, am I, are we leading a congregation with example and lives that cultivate unity in our churches? In what ways has our lives actually worked to cause this unity to be disrupted? And think of specific things in your mind. Have you, have we repented of our sins of causing disunity? Uh, if unity is important in our local churches, do you think unity is important among different local churches also? If it is true, then why have you and I ignored it and have only been preoccupied with my own local congregation? If it is true that there is one body, then in which ways have you worked to promote unity in this body in the context of the local church that you're shepherding? and local churches, fellowship of local churches. When you encourage unity in your church, what incentive, what encouragement do you give to your people or yourself for unity? Why do we want to seek unity? More power, more control, more authority, more popularity, more money. When you think of unity in your church with other churches, do you seek to see unity on the basis of theological truths that are non-negotiable? Or are you and I quick to compromise and given just so that we can have peace? Brothers, what do you think? Why have we gathered here for the last three days, two days? What do you think is the purpose of this gathering? Would you please pray for us? Will you please support this work? Many, many of you have, and we are grateful for that. Would you please do that more? Uh, do you think this in any way builds unity in the body of church, uh, Christ, particularly in India? Does it? What would, what would be your role in further building this body of Christ in your local church and beyond that? What practical steps you can take to build unity 
and I'm now specifically thinking in terms of this specific event effort, meaning AIPC. What must we avoid to rupture unity that is spirit wrought even among ourselves? What kinds of attitudes, mindset, thoughts that we must reject and condemn in order to see this unity continue to grow? Let's pray. Lord, we desire nothing less, nothing less than your glory. Full, complete, total, absolute glory in and through our lives. Father, forgive us in ways that we have disrupted that, in a, in a sense, shadowed that glory by causing disunity in your body in our local churches and churches outside. Father, help us to truly nurture, develop, grow in virtues that Paul has encouraged the church at Ephesus to. Father, would you please transform us, change us, help us rid of all negativity, bitterness, jealousy, envy, fear, desire to control that so very often destroys our own lives, our churches, and efforts to see the bride of Christ continue to be edified and grow and built up in this country. Lord, we pray that you, would you please help us to lift up our eyes, to look to the cross, to look to see, to, to see Jesus, and not just be satisfied and be concerned about our little empires and turfs that we're trying to build. Free us from that selfish desire, Father. Help us to care for unity within our church and within churches. Help us to do everything that we can do within our means to maintain unity in our church and churches beyond our churches. Would you please do that for your name's sake? The devil is clever. He is wicked one. He will certainly do this. He has done. He's tried to destroy us. He's tried, he will keep doing this. Father, please protect us for your namesake, for your glory, only so that you are lifted high, so that only you have all the honor, and so that only you have all the credit. None of the people in any ways, but only you, Lord. This is what we pray for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.